legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. A car is never just a car. Kelly Blue Book knows it's so much more than that. It's your commuting chariot, your road trip refuge, your I just need a reason to get out of the house. Your car is there for everything. And for everything car, there's Kelly Blue Book. Need a new set of wheels? Price it on Kelly Blue Book. Problem under the hood? Fix it with Kelly Blue Book. Can another car do the job better? Trade it or sell it on Kelly Blue Book. We're here mile after mile, moment after moment. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it. KBB.com. Visit kellybluebook.com to get the journey started. a young boy who didn't quite fit in, and the large metal man that brought him hope and dreams of what laid beyond the stars. Did this gentle giant come in peace or in harm? Fortunately, the timeless tale will finally be told, a beloved children's classic that didn't quite get its due, but finally made it in a, as the cult classic we all love and know, thanks to the efforts of one visionary man. That man, of course, is English rocker Pete Townsend of The Who. <laughs> Everyone loves this story. <laughs> of course, we're all familiar with this song. <laughs> this beloved song about He's a the- friend and nothing can change that. Um, it, it, what you don't get, is, unfortunately, in a podcast is visuals. <laughs> and um, I guess you're fortunate in this scenario because it is just pure, as you put it, nightmare fuel, Jake. is a, a di- very disturbing iron sort of creature. And uh, a little boy. And it's like this creepy claymation. You know what it looks like? It looks like a tool video. Yeah, what if a tool video was also like the Phil Collins Tarzan soundtrack? <laughs> Which is actually kind of funny we brought up Tarzan because that's going to come into play later. Uh, that is a clip from Pete Townsend's uh, The Iron Man. Yes, and uh, th- this story, of course, today we are doing uh, The Iron Giant, oh, the yeah, beloved s- uh, <laughs> Warner Brothers film, uh, animated film that uh, I will say, I'm just going to go ahead and say right now, it makes me cry every time I see it, uh, including earlier today when I watched it again. I cannot not cry when Holden, I watch this movie. You are who you choose <laughs> stop, to be. Stop it. I swear to God, I really don't want to cry You are who you choose to be, Holden. It's a very good movie movie i honestly and it's and it's and again i'm talking about a grown man crying every time um i'm saying i cry every time i watch this because i didn't watch this movie till um well after it came out and it came out even i was already what uh junior in high school or something yeah, like 2000. that uh so yeah which uh, if they actually advertised it for juniors mm-hmm. in high school it probably would have done amazing it actually might have done really well um it's 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 an incredible story that i had no idea existed the the build up the the uh the origin of of this uh of this film i am holden mcneely your wonderfully whimsical wispy weeping wizard and I am your iron brutish bruiser. <laughs> you have no heart. I have no. Uh, 
I'm not a gun. <laughs> you are definitely not I a gun. I am not a gun. You are the opposite of a gun, Jake Young. <laughs> oh, you stay. I go. No <laughs> Stop following. It. And he's just like, I love no you. Following. It's so touching. And I literally like this time watching it. I am Groot. This time watching it, nothing like sad had even quite. Ha- it was like just le- I, I just knew it was coming and I started just crying. We should get into our personal like thoughts of the movie watching it as adults because like uh-huh. I could talk about that for 20 minutes because I, I never saw it back in the day. Uh huh. I and, know. Yeah. I know. Me, me neither. I found it was years later. It was um, I think my buddy Tim uh, to give a shout out to him. He was the one who kind of championed it always for me in college or whatever. And I finally got around to seeing it and just, whoo, I just I had no idea it would have this effect. And the whole movie is very sweet and lighthearted and um, fun and, and whatnot, kind of all the way up until that final moment. And that's what's so mean about that <laughs> final moment is I was, oh, my God, I was a complete mess. So anyways. And, but let's, thankfully, we're alive today. And now the Iron Giant is going to be featured as a shitty cameo in Ready Player One where he has yes. guns and fight stuff. Yes. The way the Iron Giant <laughs> has always been known to do. Yep. 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 Uh, so anyways, let's let's. Let's get let's get to brass tax, Jake. Let's bring it all the way back to the to more the like very Brad's tax. Uh oh, because Brad Bird directed the film. Mm-hmm. We're going way before that, Jake. That's the fascinating part of this. Oh, we're going back to jolly old England, are uh, we? Yeah, we're gonna get really dark, by the way, for a little bit. I hope you guys are ready for like weird surprise darkness that happened. This to is me by far searching this show the most bizarre crossover <laughs> yeah, in the dude. history of our show. In 1968, a science fiction novel was written written by British poet laureate Ted Hughes for his children. Ted Hughes grew up around the farms of Calder Valley in the West Riding of Yorkshire, England. Uh, he loved to hunt and fish and swim with his family and got really into um, just an- studying animals and things like that. He st- came to view fishing as almost a religious experience, and he was introduced to poetry by some teachers and his own sister, Olwyn, um, had a hard time in college. He referred to the literary tradition as the terrible, suffocating maternal octopus. Uh, He hated the way that people systematically, scientifically broke down poems. He didn't feel like uh, that was quite right. After college, I'm trying to kind of move through this stuff because it's fascinating to me. And at the same time, there's just so much to cover here. He ends up working, um, but I'll get to the juicy suicide shit in just a little bit here. Uh, (laughs) He ended up working many jobs after college, such as a rose gardener, a night watchman. And more, most importantly, a washer upper at the London Zoo. This I'm allowed sorry, him to you made up that job title. A washer upper. That's what it said. That's what. That's what. That's ripped straight from the headlines of Wikipedia. By headlines, I mean it was deep in the depths of the page on Ted Hughes. He uh, was a washer upper at the London Zoo, and this allowed him to view animals up close. Uh, one night uh, at a uh, at a get together, he meets a woman named Sylvia Plath. Oh, I had to read a bunch of her for my uh, <laughs> bachelor of arts degree. Yeah, did you know that um uh she uh stuck her head in an oven and killed herself? That's I mean, she also wrote some amazing works of literature. Mm-hmm. But yes, yes. Did you know that Ted Hughes was largely blamed for that? Just because letters resurfaced after her death that explained that he was uh, abusive towards her after their second child miscarried whatever 
because so so he's he's starting to work that's on a, I'm just, that's very cow so it's yeah, very that's yeah, real I ass know. shit I know I, was I feel awful mortified I was mortified but when the, I was the fact about that there's this. a direct line between the death of Sylvia Plath and fucking Hogarth and Kent Mansley yes. is it's <laughs> insane um so during their marriage uh it comes out that um, Hughes has been having an affair with a woman named Asia Wevel, uh, uh, I think was a neighbor, I believe. And um, that was around, uh, they get divorced around 62. Sylvia Plath takes her own life around uh, 1963 in February. Hughes writes a letter to an old friend of Plath saying, that's the end of my life. The rest is posthumous. Uh, Hughes is blamed for her suicide. Um, Vandals repeatedly try to chisel off the word Hughes from her gravestone. And he ends up taking over for her like literary estate, essentially. He ends up being kind of the, the main honcho when it comes to publishing her work and everything, which got a, uh, he got a lot of flack from as well. Um, he still goes on to make um, some different work. The, the, the insane thing, too, is to add on top of it all, Asia, Asia, I'm not sure if I'm saying this name correctly. In 1969, Asia Wevel also commits suicide in the exact same way Plath did by sticking her head in the oven. Jesus. Right? Yeah, did you not know that part? I didn't find that part. Right after he, killing uh, her and Hughes' four-year-old daughter. Fuck! Yeah, bro. Iron Giant, dude. <laughs> I was like, what? It's Monday. What is happening? I want to... It's <laughs> from the studio that brought you the Looney Tunes comes... Whoa. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I wanted to give you an excerpt, act- actually, of one of his poems, um, uh, just to give you an idea of what kind of uh, um, artist he was. He was mostly a poet. He, uh, uh, the, the Iron Man, A Children's Story in Five Nights is the name of his science fiction work that he wrote for his children. Is sort of like... Um, a anti-war allegory, uh, a pro-nature allegory. Um, so here is a, a book. One of his best-known works is The Life and Songs of the Crow. It has uh, illustrations by a man named Leonard Baskin. It's very well known, uh, I think, in the in the poetry world. Um, this is a poem uh, I will read to you right now, Jake, and we have to make eye contact the entire time I read you I, I, this poem. Very uncomfortable already. It's called Crow Blacker Than Ever. <clears throat> when God, disgusted with man, turned towards heaven... And man, disgusted with God, turned towards Eve. Things looked like falling apart, but crow, crow, crow nailed them together, nailing heaven and earth together. So man cried, but with God's voice, and God bled, but with man's voice. Then heaven and earth creaked at the joint, which became gangrenous and stank, a horror beyond redemption. The agony did not diminish. Man could not be a man, nor God, God. The agony grew, crow, grinned, crying, this is my creation, flying the black flag of himself. Remember when Hogarth gave the FBI guy X-lax and then he pooped his pants a bunch? That was real funny. Was, that was a good he part. He shot behind a bush. It was, so, it was funny. So back to this, um, this it's described also as a modern fairy tale. Back to the Iron Man. Um, this oh, is, wait, I'm sorry. The Iron what? Yes, the Iron Man, not the Iron Giant. 
Um, I'm not sure exactly when this happens, but of course, in making the, I think it's more around the time that they're adapting the uh, musical, not the film. <laughs> we'll get there uh, when they're trying to adapt adapt the musical into a film. They realize they can't uh, make an American film called The Iron Man because of, of course, bam, the my- Marvel. Boom, 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 boom. Is this before? This is well before though, like Iron Man, like the Marvel Capcom, the or the Marvel Capcom universe, the Marvel comics universe. Uh, is a big deal, right? I you know, mean, I kind of glazed over the book a bit, so I actually don't know what the exact time frame is. But uh, uh, well, this the book comes out. But Iron Man is should be like late sixties. The early book comes 70s. out in nineteen sixty eight. You can mark uh, every time in uh, Hughes's publishing life by his wife's suicides. Mm. So uh, this was one year before his uh, second wife's wife's suicide. If they're married, I don't even know if they're married. Let's stop talking about that. Yeah, uh, good idea. <laughs> So anyways, uh, uh, The Iron Man, uh, the book that he wrote, it describes an unexpected arrival in England of a giant metal man of unknown origin who rains destruction on the countryside by attacking industrial farm equipment before befriending a small boy and defending the world from a monster from outer space. Um, now, what kind of monster? Do you remember how they describe Space Bat monster? Angel Dragon. Oh, Space Bat Angel Dragon. Space Bat Angel Dragon. The, the Space Bat Angel Dragon, which is the size of Australia. Spad, oh, okay. for short. Spad. Yes, the Space Bat Angel Dragon. And how does the Iron Gi- Iron Man uh, defeat the Space Bat Angel Dragon? Uh, challenges the Space Bat Angel Dragon to a contest uh, where the Iron Man has to, what, it's like he's getting melted by something. Gasoline. Gasoline. But um, I don't think this is a very fair fight because Space Bat Angel Dragon has to, like, sit in the sun. So, of course, the Space Bat Angel <laughs> yeah. Dragon ends up losing. But then you come to find out in the end that this star spirit, another reference, uh, mm. uh, as it's also referred to, um, actually was a, a force of good that came to Earth because of the ongoing sights and sounds produced by humanity's violent warfare. It goes around singing peaceful music to distract uh, the population from, oh, after, after, I'm sorry, I should say, after the contest, after it loses the contest, it then goes around the Earth singing peaceful music, distracting everyone uh, from their egocentrism and tendency to fight, causing worldwide lasting peace. Are we back at the Philip K. Dick episode? So I know, right? I'm fucking freaking out again. So this is the part where Valis starts, okay? Um, <laughs> oh, the Space God. Bad Angel Dragon starts doing lots of cocaine. <laughs> it was amphetamines, damn it. <laughs> um, so anyways, that that's 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 all I got for this part of the tale. But the it Hughes. was a popular book in England, a popular children's story. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, for some reason, I don't know, maybe several horrific allegations came up uh, in recent history, but Pete Townsend enjoys that childlike sense of wonder, especially the friendship between a large man and a small child. Yes. And so he decided to write a, uh, a musical and a concept album about the book, The Iron Man. Yes, absolutely. And it is called The Iron Man, The Musical by Pete Townsend. Mm. Uh, He uh, produced it, mostly composed and performed it as well. He actually plays Hogarth. Uh, in in the musical, uh, Roger Daltrey plays Hogarth's father. John Lee Hooker plays Iron Man, and Nina Simone plays the Space Dragon. And the songs are pretty fucking cool. I really enjoy, especially I eat heavy metal. This is John Lee Hooker as the Iron Man, um, and and it's a rad tune. Here we go. I eat heavy metal and gobble premium gas. Right? This is fucking good. Water, yeah. yeah. Heavy metal. I didn't hear this one. It's dope. 
course, of course, because it's fe- the Iron Man is feeding on you know the junk and everything. Um, and then here's another one because I actually I really liked a lot of the stuff, and I had to know. So Nina Simone plays Space Bad Angel Dragon, mm-hmm. plays the spirit, and this is her song. It's called Fast Food. This is one of her songs. Fast food. Yeah. Feed me fast. Oh my god, this is the kind of like concept album stuff that like my parents would play for me because they'd still want to rock out, but like it had to be for kids. Yes. This is the exact level, because it's like all famous musicians kind of like lowering themselves to do like kids' fanciful magic stuff. I bet I would have loved this as a kid, actually. The song we played earlier. It's like children's theater and stuff like that. Oh, you absolutely would have been all over this. Mm -hmm. Uh, The song we played at the beginning is called A Friend is a Friend, and it has an accompanying music video, and it is just a psychotropic nightmare. Just absolutely and completely and utterly terrifying. If you are an Iron Iron Giant fan, which, by the way, if we... we're gonna spoil the movie. It's like, inte- like yeah. I was gonna make a note of it um, later. Uh, later on, when we kind of got more to talking about the mm-hmm. ending and everything. But if you're already, if your interest is peaked or your interest does get peaked at any point, I think we'll save talking about the ending till like near the end okay. to let you build up that. Because if you haven't seen this film, I highly, highly recommend you watch it. Um, it's really just an absolutely beautiful, touching work. Um, and like I said, like I don't cry at a lot of movies. I, I cry at movies. I'm not going to sit here and say like I never cry at movies, but um, man, I can't believe how effective this one is <laughs> in that sense of making like some emotional, having just emotional resonance with me and a lot of people. I pretty much everybody I knew. Yeah. I showed it to Lexi, who I don't think she was prepared to, to have that response at all, uh, and she totally was this in the same place. Like tears fall out of my face when I watch it like I don't it's so crazy like I I it's like you don't see it coming you know you just it just out of nowhere you're just like whoa I like am way connected to this story actually I had it on watching it with my girlfriend Marie who was having who's feeling sick and under the weather and so like I was just like doing my research and watching the movie and like research my research (laughs) and she fell asleep because the early part of the movie starts pretty slow totally yeah and so she missed the ending, and I had to, like, just show her the one scene out of context, and it still devastated her <laughs> with, like, no idea who any of these characters are. It's so well set up. It's so well done. So anyways, uh, just just a note about that. Now, we were talking about the goofy-ass musical, though. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else do we have for this? So, <clears throat> Okay. There's a stage show done of this musical at the Young Vic Theater in London in 1993. I've actually been to the Young Vic, beautiful theater. Um, wonderful shows go on there. So I was really pleased to hear that that happened. I bet it was absolutely amazing. And um, it did so well that Warner Brothers optioned it for a movie. So that's how it ends up in Warner Brothers' hands. It's not actually the Hughes book, but it's it's instead Warner Brothers' is interest is peaked off of the musical. So they just have this musical that they're just like, can we make a movie out of it? Hollywood options a lot of things. Totally, right? I would uh, love to see yeah. the vault of each of those studios, too, of all the things they're just sitting on. I mean, it's legendary. In fact, um, are, are we going to skip ahead? I, I don't want to skip ahead, but... 
Lit- uh, no, no, no. We'll get to it. Okay. We'll get to it. So, um, in 1991, actually, just as a little aside, mm-hmm. there was a Richard Basley pitched a version uh, of this to Don Bluth while working at his studio in Ireland. Bluth directed Secret of Nim, American Tale, Land Before Time, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Uh, he also, I did not know this, he worked on the video game Dragon's Lair. And if what? you don't know Dragon's Lair. How do you not Lair, look at Dragon's Lair and be like, that I is know, Don Bluth as hell? Bluth. I don't know, because I didn't know exactly who Also, the- he just did the animation. There's like actually a long, long-standing thing where like the actual programmer who like wrote and made all the stuff and like right. made Dragon's Lair, Dragon's Lair. And if you don't gets know, like so little credit. If you don't know Dragon's Lair, you probably have seen the new season of Stranger Things, the video game mm. they're playing in the like very first episode. Um. So, anyways, Bluth actually passes on Basley's story and character designs, but uh, just there's just a lot of different people pitching it around. It started because it's a popular book. It's, it's a popular it should book. Get option. It's getting looked at. Um. In comes in, in steps Brad Bird, but. We're, we're gonna do a little lead up for Brad Bird. Rewind. Mm-hmm. So Brad Bird, we're rewinding from the moment he says, "I'll make that movie." <laughs> His classic catchphrase. When Brad Bird was 11 years old, he took a tour of Walt Disney Studios and said that one day he would be a part of their animation team. He went home. He creates his own 15-minute animation short. Um, at either he must have put it out around like 13 or 14. Around 14. Because at age 14. 14, he ends up getting taken in by the studio and gets mentored by animator Milt Call. That is the cr- oh, youngest, most insane. The position didn't exist. There was yeah. no bring in this 14-year-old boy to work with the golden age of Disney animators. It's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I was, you know, usually a lot of times it's like, oh, I worked hard. I got out of college. I stri-. I mean, he does have that st- part like of the story. But like Jungle Book, like uh, Robin Hood, like this golden era of like full motion Disney animation. Well, because he is one of, I loved learning about this because I actually wasn't aware of it before. He was one of Disney's nine old men, mm-hmm. this uh, this uh, Milt call. Um, they The nine old men referred by... Uh, referred to as such by Walt Disney himself. They were the uh, core animators for Disney. Um, They created some of the company's most famous animated cartoons. Um, Call was known for specifically working on these characters, Pinocchio, Tigger, Peter Pan, my favorite villain in a fucking movie, in a cartoon movie ever maybe, Mad Madam Mim from Sword in the Stone. Oh, was shit. His. I love Mad Madam Mim. Mad Madam Mim. That, like, ooh, it's so good. It's one of my favorite. Uh, anyways, I love Sword in the Stone, by the way. We have to do a movie uh, uh, episode on Sword in the Stone. I love Sword in the Stone. Oh, because you, you liked it when he turned to a little squirrel and that hot squirrel oh, chick was ready yeah, to Oh, yeah, and him. they did the cute squirrel thing. And I always told uh, Lexi that uh, initially I was like, you know, you, you look like the girl squirrel. Oh, my God. <laughs> Too real. Because officially, we went too real. So we'll probably even use for like wedding photo stuff, but the picture of the girl squirrel hugging the boy squirrel from I, I, Sword in the Stone. I officially resigned from this podcast. <laughs> I had no idea I was working with a furry furry. <laughs> so uh, and and Shere Khan from Jungle Book. He yeah. he also worked on. He's you know prolific dude. I mean one one of the one of the the power nine as I'll refer to them. <laughs> Um, so Bird referred to Call as tough but in a gentle way as he often gave Bird advice on where he could improve in animation whenever he came up short uh, he he ends up uh, working with them for years eventually is awarded a scholarship by Disney to attend California Institute of the Arts which he- Cal Arts this is a famous uh, animation school uh, the teams that have brought you 
everything from Steven Universe to mm-hmm. like the Nicktoons. It's all the CalArts room A113 or A133. It's mm. this is a legendary school. Like if you have the goods and you get out of CalArts, like you're pretty much your path is made in the animation industry. He ends up meeting uh, another future in an animator and fucking Pixar co-founder, uh, John Lasseter. Oh, that old so-and-so. Mm-hmm. After uh, graduating, Bird ends up, and, and this is very important because Bird goes on to do a lot of things um, and uh, work for Pixar, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But he gets his dream job back at Disney. Yes. The only problem is, is that uh, he was work. He he did his internship during the Golden Age with the Nine Old Men. And he was finally working for Disney in the 80s, mm. the dark period. Yeah, the, they all left during the film he came in on, which was Fox and the Hound. Yeah. So they all left early in the Fox and the Hound development, and uh, the new cl- the new class, the new wave was kind of uh, established with that film in 1981. And so he actually ends up leaving after his first after after that film after his very first project Fox well, and the Hound. Well, he would you- own, he would like you know this is during the uh, uh, the Black Call. Aldrin and the or no Black Aldrin was a little earlier. They're in like the Oliver and Company years, like the mm-hmm. the years where this was Disney's like fall from grace before they kind of had their renaissance with the Little Mermaid. Uh-huh. And he was a fire starter. He would pick apart things. He would like raise his voice when he knew they were cutting corners. And his bosses hated him, and he mm. hated his bosses. Mm-hmm. So uh, when they finally like sat him down <laughs> to fire him, he was like, you know what this whole thing has been. And the he didn't know what else to like. He was trying to like give his big triumphant like "fuck you," and he like was at a loss for words because he realized he was about to get fired from the one thing he wanted to do his entire life. And his bosses just looked him in the eye and said, "A disappointment." <laughs> so he ends up. Have you ever seen the Steven Spielberg uh, fantasy horror fi- sci-fi TV anthology "Amazing Stories"? Uh, I know specifically the animated sequence you're talking about, but uh, yes, it was also like a like a movie compilation as well. I don't remember. I don't remember this at all. It ran from 1985 to 1987 mm. on NBC. Brad Bird hops on to uh, do an episode called "Family Dog." A dog goes through his life with his family. Um, that that's where he kind of gets initiated with Steve. Spielberg. He also writes another pitch for uh, Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories. A little, a little known story idea about a small spaceship saving a block from property development called Batteries Not Included. Now, Steven Spielberg loves the idea so much. He says, "No, no, 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 no. I this is too good. We're, we got to commission a full feature length film out of this." Oh my god, I didn't know this. Yeah, so so he ends up writing that. That ends up being uh, Brad Bird's very first screenplay, oh and my god. Uh, that was yeah the 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 film batteries not included. Um, I would replay that movie at like on like. Over the like on Channel mm-hmm. Eleven on was, rainy afternoon. It was that perfect Saturday afternoon, Sunday yeah. afternoon movie. Um, yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about that the other day. How I, I was like, my life over the weekends a lot of times revolved around the choices they made for those <laughs> afternoon movies. Like I would like look up and be like, Goonies, fuck yeah, you know. But then it would be like, Earth Girls are easy. <laughs> cocoon too. <laughs> yeah, it was what always. What am I supposed to do with Cocoon? It was two? always Cocoon. I, what was that? The raw sexual energy of Wilford Brimley just sold a lot of soap. My favorite know. one, too, probably, if I saw it was on, Monster Squad. Oh. Wolfman has nards. Uh, so, anyway, Bird joins a little, like, American multimedia entertainment production company called Klas- Klasky 
Chupo. Classy Chupo. Okay, classy The Rugrats team. Yes, the Rugrats team. Well, first, though, their first big break was actually creating title sequences for a TV show called The Tracy Ullman Show. And after that, they were also given the job of 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 um, taking these uh, Simpson shorts that were being created for them and moving them to primetime television. Mm-hmm. They sort of helped with that, and that's how Bird, Brad Bird, which I I have to assume we talked about him in our Simpsons episode. Um, was Ideally, his name he was, mentioned? He was a consultant. He like when you think of a lot of like the essential like good shots, those good sequences in those early Simpson seasons. Chances are there was like a note written by him to like pace it out he directed the episodes crusty gets busted which you would know as the first appearance or the first speaking uh appearance of sideshow bob the whole the whole sideshow bob taking a heel turn and becoming evil um and he also i don't know why it's always crusty but he also did like father like clown the one where crusty confronts his father which is a beautiful episode i love those two episodes um he directed that with uh, jeffrey lynch and mainly just exactly served as a consultant for at least the first eight seasons now he credits his work with the simpsons as how he was able to work under such a tight deadline he actually says um that uh the amazing stories experience with working on family dog was where he learned how to uh pull together a good team how how he understood the importance of that having that like group of people to work with so he also ends up being one of the animators of the rugrats pilot speaking of rugrats again tommy pickles and the great white thing i mean if you look at the animation quality on that initial Mm -hmm. uh rugrats pilot it is insane Mm -hmm. the amount of just raw pencil mileage and just frames and interesting shots that they threw in there uh in the in like in the Rugrats title sequence if you notice that the animation's like a little bit like like more fluid it's because that's still like that original Klasky Shupo Brad Bird like level of attention to detail in there right and he ends up working on the critic on King of the Hill um I feel like Thus far, I just realized we probably brought up about eight different subjects that could get their own episode on Wizard and the Bruiser easily, <laughs> right? And we're not even getting to the to our to our subject today. He he, uh, of course, after the Iron Giant, he ends up um, going on to write and direct and voice act on The Incredibles. I love this and and he and uh, he does Ratatouille and many other big things. One of my favorite stories with him is um, how he ends up he ends up voicing uh, Edna Mode. And uh, the whole deal with that was apparently when they were auditioning for the voice actors for that role, he kept kind of giving them a little bit of like kind of line readings a little bit. And he kept describing to the other people in the room like what, what exactly what he was looking for. And he would just start doing the voice of Edna Mode. And after a while, they were like, why don't you just do it? <laughs> you know, like after a while, they're just like, they're just like, you're, you're crushing this. Just do the part. <laughs> so that's how we ended up voicing that um, very iconic character. Of uh, course, Incredibles 2 coming out um, later this year, right? Yeah. Uh, also, uh, in his personal life, during the kind of in-between years between Disney and uh, his TV gigs, uh, his sister is uh, killed in an act of gun violence. Oh my God. Yeah. And uh, he describes this as even while he's working on the Simpsons and the critic and stuff, he's like, he says that it was a very dark time in his life and that he was kind of like, if it wasn't for the work he was doing in animation, he would just be like listless. And it was kind of like lost years in his life. And of course that's incredibly important. um, When you look at the subject matter of iron giant. Um, Uh, So he 
wanders his way into working for Turner, the Turner mm-hmm. company, uh, because there's a post-Disney boom. Uh, Little Mermaid came out. Beauty and the Beast came out. And now, all of a sudden, feature animation, which had long been considered a just like a dead end. Like, you'd never make more than $30 million on an animated feature film. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. It kind of just... So he gets he has a contract with uh, Turner, uh, who we covered in our Cartoon Network episode, and uh, he describes this as his period of suspended animation because he was pitching movies and working on development and concept art, especially for this kind of like neo noir sci fi future thing called Ray Gun. Ray Gun, the last human private detective hired to investigate the alleged infidelity of a pop singer named Venus Envy. Navigating a world cohabitated by humans and aliens, Gun finds that Envy is being set up by her scheming husband to take the fall for the murder of her body double. Now, this came to him. When uh, he was, uh, he had an idea of crossing uh, the song Planet Claire by the B-52s, which I'll play for you right here. Uh, he ended up crossing this, this with uh, the 1950s TV detective show, Peter Gunn. So he just kind of got inspired by the kind of cross of music uh, of, with, with that old show. He also loves like hard-boiled, root and tootin' trench coat mm-hmm. detective stories. Um, if, uh, you know, the... The Incredibles kind of covers his like pulp uh, instincts there, but uh, for a long time he tried to adapt Will Eisner's The Spirit as well. That was mm-hmm. like his first independent project after Disney. And, and in the in and the Iron Giant, there's a call out for The Spirit. And he still wants to make Ray Gun. It's still a, it's still an idea he's kept sit, sitting on. And um, when this is a theme that'll come back again and again, I feel like Turner thinks it's a little too intense for children. Mm. So Bird Bird feels uh, this is a good, great quote from Bird. In animation, you're always fighting against. Well, that might upset a five year old. My feeling is, well, then the five year old shouldn't go. Come on, can we make some other things? <laughs> Which it's, I love. Uh, yeah. Well, here's the thing: is uh, like. In never-ending story, remember all the psycho bullshit that like gave keep kids nightmares. Mm-hmm. Like the '80s is full of all these like yeah. these fucked up kids movies mm-hmm. that like because they were like just on pure cocaine adrenaline creativity, they just let it happen and it just traumatized an entire generation. So you know uh. what? You go suit studio suits. <laughs> no. You make sure that there's no horrific horse drownings in your movies. Who do you side with? Holden or Jake on this one? Let us know on Facebook. Remember when there was that I fucking say, goop monster? Mess up the kids. It's fun. <laughs> no. I was obsessed with the Hobbit because the, it was it was so dark and disturbing, unlike Where all those other whip there's, there's a way that's actually in the lord of the rings but either way oh we're, actually we're fuck yourself <laughs> um so uh turner ends up merging with warner brothers and as and, part of that mm-hmm. uh, the last three months of mm-hmm. brad bird's contract <laughs> Uh, uh, they convince him to direct the Iron Giant. Uh, whoa, whoa, whoa. There's like, okay, so. Yeah, you got to give me the fill in the blanks here. So first they're like, they take a look at all of the stuff he had done for Ray Gunn, and they're like, no. <laughs> so they hand him a literal pile of their acquired scripts and properties, and in the pile is the Iron Man. Pete Townsend's the Iron Man. And actually, he ends up going back and reading the book, and that's what impresses him. About the whole thing, he he see, he reads that and he thinks the mythology is just fantastic, and he also that uh, 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 it seems that Warner Brothers is willing to give him a lot of control over this project. Now this is again he, um, okay. Wait, are you going to do? 
I was going to do my whole thing where it's like Mega Man, Resident Evil. How many subjects have we covered where it's a dude in a company that that it's a project they don't really care about. It's, you know, it's this and that. And and, you know, they just put a bunch of hard. I mean, this this story is a little bit more, uh, uh, I guess, sadder in terms of its like arc. But still, there's just something to taking something that everyone's kind of like, yeah, whatever. Do your own thing with that one. We don't really care about that one. The hey, whatever comes later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm going with uh, a legendary pitch. Oh, yes. It please. always boils down to mm-hmm. a legendary pitch meeting. So uh, his hand, Brad Bird's handlers are like, what do you think about, like, so he brings them the Iron Man. Legendary pitch, by the way, see SpongeBob SquarePants for reference yeah. to legendary pitch. Go on, Jake. And uh, Brad Bird's, like, elevator pitch is, what if a gun had a soul and thought it didn't want to be a gun? Mm-hmm. And that like blew their minds so much that he got into a meeting with the bigwigs. And so Brad Bird sits down with like the Warner Brothers bigwigs and he's like, what if a gun had a soul and realized it didn't want to be a gun anymore? And everyone goes like, ooh. And then he just launches into basically the entirety of his pitch of his story for the Iron Giant. Everything from Kent Mansley to the switching everything from England to Maine during the Cold War, the Sputnik. The the train sequence, the Superman stuff. It's he's just pouring this out of him. And uh, Brad Bird, when he relays this story about this pitch meeting, uh, remembers that one of the bigwig elbows the guy next to him and tells him to start writing all this stuff down, because Warner Brothers behind his back tried to uh, <laughs> tried to actually commission other screenwriters to do the story to do the script for them. And he actually, before the big pitch meeting, was smart enough to register his ideas with the Writers Guild. Oh, wow. So he fucking shot him in the back for that. Uh, but the crew loved it so much and they couldn't fuck they couldn't fuck him out of the idea that they gave him uh, they gave him the the green light to make this animated picture as lo- along with all their other like big ideas to compete with Disney, including the quest for Camelot. Yes, the quest for Camelot will be will play a, a bit of a part in this tale. My question is though, is this after the tale you just told me? Because I was also came to understand that Tim McCanley's is hired to write the script, and at first Bird was like, "What? I don't." But then he read the script that McCanley's wrote and ended up like really loving it. I think, um, but yeah. I think at first he wasn't very happy with that, so they still managed to hire a scriptwriter under his nose. But I guess he just had to give approval to it. I think so. Okay, so so he's got a couple changes he wants to do from um, from the musical. Mainly, it's dropping the whole musical part of it. Yeah. Uh, Pete Townsend um, famously said of that, well, whatever, I got paid. No, uh, he's, it's the one of the weirdest things is when the credits roll, it's executive producer Pete Townsend. <laughs> it's so bizarre. And of course, he decides to move it over to America um, using that Norman Rockwell idyllic main setting um, and uh, on the outside, but inside everything is just about to boil over. Everyone's scared of the bomb. This is set in the Cold War with uh, the Russians and Sputnik and all that kind of all that kind of stuff, and just the idea that um, you you had this uh, yeah you had this great fear going on in America, and then we're going to drop this big robot into that that's sort of lethal um, but has a heart. 
Uh, it just seemed like kind of the perfect setting and definitely a setting he's interested in. He's definitely interested in like a retro feel, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Bird himself. And and so this is a way for him to at least get to do some of the things maybe he was hoping to accomplish with uh, Ray Gunn. At least him get do like an American period piece, yeah. you know, which which was which was definitely what's one of the most. And we haven't really talked about that yet. And we're going to get it more into that um, moving forward now that we're getting into design and things like that with production. But one of the really beautiful and surprising surprising things about this film is that it's this American period piece set in the 50s you know like even the sci-fi angle of it looks very 50s like mm-hmm. the design of the Iron Giant and all that kind of stuff well, kind of feels 50s. design process for the Iron Giant was uh, pretty laborious because they had all these all this work that was done for the musical mm. and Brad Bird just wanted to throw them out because again if you look at the music video on YouTube yeah. it is freaky deaky um <laughs> And so he went through a few revisions, uh, different animators and designers, um, a guy named Joe Johnson. Uh, he basically yes. started with the idea of this Art Deco train illustration, which like if you if you already imagine what an Art Deco train looks like, it's kind of like bullety and like, you know, kind of solid yet streamlined. Uh, and then they went through several revisions. And the big reveal was when I can't find the designer's name, but there's a series of charcoal drawings where they did a study on how the Iron Giant's expressions would work where all of the expressions were just the eyelids and the jaw sliding up and down. And because the jaw is a straight line, if you lean it forward, you can see the curve of a smile. If you're looking from below, you see the grimace of a frown. So I always... perspective changes the emotional look of the... So always the giant is solid. The giant Mm -hmm. is a hulking metal solid thing, but it can still express so much life, which was a brilliant design choice and 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 you mentioned joe johnston he yeah. he uh was was the designer of the giant he did the effect he was uh, on effects for the star wars trilogy won an oscar i believe uh for that work he also directed a fucking rad film called honey i shrunk the kids <laughs> and a rad film called jumanji and uh the first captain america of the you know more modern marvel films uh, he, he's done a lot of really great work, and uh, it's really cool that he specifically um, created the giant. I want to go back to the screenplay, though, okay. before we get more into the animation and design. Uh, Tim McCanley's, I want to talk about him a little bit because he wrote a brilliant screenplay. I mean, th- this is absolutely incredible. I attribute so much of what's great about it to, to the scre- screenplay he wrote. And I think that his background actually speaks towards how he was able to conceive such a thing. He uh, he was like an army brat. His dad was uh, in the Air Force. They traveled all over the all over America. He got his start making short films um, at, in Texas, which did pretty well in some competitions. He ends up moving to L.A. And uh, weirdly enough, he ends up working on Fox and the Hound as a story artist. Which is very bizarre. That they, <laughs> I guess he, I don't know, because from what it said, you know, from the way it seemed, like Bird didn't really choose him. Yeah, he's yeah. just that he just wrote such a great script that he was like, all right, cool, let's go with it. And um, he ends up uh, making a film called Secondhand Lions, which I'd actually be kind of interested to check out. Bird really liked his script for that, which gave him, I think, a little bit more of a sense of okay in terms of McCanley's writing The Iron Giant. Uh, Secondhand Lions is about a kid sent to live with his eccentric great uncles on a farm in Texas. It stars Michael Caine, Robert Duvall, and Haley Joel Osment. It didn't do super hot. Uh, but it sounds interesting, and it sounds perfectly in line with with Hughes, 
with with like what birds trying to do with these like man main landscapes and everything um and and with the americana thing like it just feels like really like a perfect kind of connection um so uh yeah, so so we were he's working on the script for the Iron Giant uh, with the tight schedule. The tight schedule is really what allows them to get a lot around Warner Brothers. It seems like they I see I've seen this a few times. They were on a really tight deadline. They gave him like no money. They gave him like half of the the but uh, of the t- of the uh, a time. typical Disney movie of the era would take about five years to put together wow. from like initial design concept to script revisions, to storyboarding, to like recording, to animation. Uh, the Iron Giant had a little over two years. As per, uh, per McCanley's, because of this, Warner Brothers didn't have time to meth- mess with us. Uh, he sends a script to Hughes himself, who responds um, with this quote. I want to tell you how much I like what Brad Bird has done. He's made something all of a piece with terrific sinister gathering momentum and the ending came to me as a glorious piece of amazement. He's made a terrific dramatic uh, situation out of the way he's developed Iron the Iron Giant. I can't stop thinking about it. So I love hearing that, that Hughes was like super pleased with how, how this adaptation came out. Um, so anyways, now we get into production. Uh, I love the collaboration of this production. I, I love I love all the things I'm seeing about how how different it was from many other films at that time. A lot of a lot of other films were were you know usually kind of like uh, on our Street Fighter episode, like everybody had their own character. That was a lot of what they were doing at that point. But he wanted to go against the grain and make this movie more like old Disney animated films, which is. Um, more like people had different each individual worked on sequences mm. as opposed to characters uh which is what what it seemed like their approach was it's not only that but this was a rogues gallery of people that he mm. had brought together because there was this secondary feature animation boom uh you know think about stuff like anastasia and all dogs go to heaven and uh, uh, what are, I'm trying to think of the other studios that were also throwing in their two cents dreamworks dreamworks yeah. was going nuts mm-hmm. fucking Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron shit. It was like they saw Disney was weak, yeah. and they like all went for the kill. No, no, no. Of. They saw Disney was weak and were like, huh, those idiots. They Then when Disney came roaring back, they're like, oh, it's a money machine. You just have to have something in the theaters, and kids will see it. But so a lot of the team, from the storyboard artists to the key animators, uh, this was their first feature film, and they were like insane. <laughs> like they were not ready to have this much responsibility. Mm. And so... Um, the fact that there was this kind of like rock and roll kind of outsider energy uh, kind of got over the fact that they were being forced to work 60 hour weeks on this thing because their schedule was so tight. They actually brought in people from CalArts, right? Yeah. They brought in uh, students from CalArts to assist in minor animation work due to the schedule. Bird really tried to spread out the work as much as he could um, because, he, as he put it, if you let the top guys do all the best assignments, you overburden your strongest people and underburden the others. He's really trying to spread this work out, get this stuff done. Um, the group would gather in a screening room to view completed sequences uh, as, as a team. Uh, oh, it was like... Like a, it was a, a group criticism. Yeah, if you ever go to art school, you know there's that thing where the teacher just kind of puts your work up and everyone has to criticize it. And Bird would like draw over it. And they stuff. projected the scenes over a whiteboard so Brad Bird can like go in and draw over the per- the people's work and show them how they can improve. Apparently, uh, there, there was a moment when the, all the crew gathered around to test a sequence in which the giant learns what a soul is, and uh, as as Bird puts it, people in the room were spontaneously crying. It was pivotal. There was uh, an 
undeniable feeling that we were really tapping into something. I mean, I think everybody, as hard as they're working, they're all starting to feel like we've got some really ma- some real magic on our hands. And, um, you know, they've got people. All right, there's this one guy, Teddy Newton. He was a big deal, storyboard artist. Uh, he created the duck and cover musical sequence in the film. Brilliant. Uh, which which I meant to pull it up, but just go check it out. Yeah, the, it's this perfect little, like, um, kind of like like an old, like as they put it, they wanted like an old-timey hygiene commercial type of deal, but for like the bomb. And yeah. it's like duck and cover, like, you know, like the bomb's coming down. And that had that dark edge to it that you didn't see in a lot of kids films where they're like no this is the time of the bomb everyone's freaked out about it you know but it was like that stuff too wasn't like put out in a way that would be like more palatable for no it was just like an element that was happening like underneath this movie like you know just in the background now this they made uh the idea was that like Uh, don't try and out disney disney do the shit that disney was never going to do in the first place that's how you're going to succeed and uh, they nicknamed Teddy Newton the X Factor and gave him a lot of artistic freedom on the on the project. So things are happening in that sense too that you don't quite see that much in really more strict animation studios. The people can kind of come in and start t- tinkering with and, and tweaking elements and things. Uh, also, Teddy Newton worked as a storyboard artist on Dexter's Laboratory and did a ton of work for Pixar. So this guy really goes on to do some like amazing stuff. Um, so should we talk about Quest for Camelot now? When do we want to get into that and how that's affecting things? Because a lot of the tight budget, having half the time, all that stuff, that is a direct effect of Quest for Camelot, correct? Well, basically, Quest for Camelot is their, like, darling. Warner Brothers is throwing all their money and attention to Quest for Camelot. It is this Disney on Disney on Don Bluth thing. Um, there's, like, a two-headed dragon voiced by famous comedians. It's... It's basically, uh, oh, Gary Oldman plays an oddly sensual Scottish pirate Viking. It's fucked up. Um, (laughs) Did you see it? Have you seen it? No, but for some reason, the song The Prayer is like really is from Quest for Camelot and no one remembers, but it's like, na, 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 na. Like, it's like a big, like, showstopper, like, uh, audition piece. Uh huh. And like, it's from fucking Quest for Camelot. Anyway, it eats balls. It's It sucks a big old D, as they put it, in uh, terms of box office numbers. It just shits itself left and right. <laughs> <laughs> this star-studded big animation picture just is like in front of its entire family, covered in shit, <laughs> somehow trying to like uh, d- d- jerk off with a limp penis. It's very upsetting. Everything is just so bad about this movie. And so this movie that did everything right, that got all the celebrities, uh, Warner Brothers had tried to get a lot of celebrity voices on the Iron Giant and Brad Bird like literally put his foot down and it's like, you're not wasting my money. On this bullshit. Okay, Jennifer Aniston's cool. We'll have her in there. Um, <laughs> Harry Connick Jr. That was his idea. That's the thing. Oh, awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's Shooter McGavin's the main bad I, guy. Yes, yeah, I know. Well, we'll get, I wanted like, to get very, into voice casting later, but we can talk about it now. Shooter McGavin, the best bad guy of all time, plays... Uh, Kent Mansley. By the way, I wonder... I, I bet more people call him Shooter McGavin at then this point than his McCla- actual name. Uh, he had a DUI last year. Let him be. He's fine. Um, Christopher McDonald. I love Christopher <laughs> McDonald. He's the best. I literally wrote Christopher McDonald, a.k.a. Shooter McGavin. <laughs> um, because he wanted the voice, you know, he wanted the real, he wanted voices that fit more than voices that, like, were attention getters. Harry, um, Harry Connick Jr. is so good in this movie. The uh, yes, Searching Tumblr, the, the amount of thirst. 
I was expecting like weird fan art of the mom because there's always weird fan art of the mom. The thirst for fucking Dean is real. He's the cutest beatnik, like most charming beatnik. Boy. I'm ready. I want a beatnik stepdad. Get him in here. Um, I'm sorry, real quick. Also, they got Stifler from American Pie to be. <laughs> To be uh, no, no, Hogarth. Stifler's brother is Hogarth. Stifler's brother is his Hogarth? little brother is Hogarth. Oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, Eli something or other. Eli Actually, uh, Marienthal. I don't think his performance is that good, and it's like one of the weak points in the movie. Okay. But um, I'll take it. He like you know made a go as a child actor. His like last thing was a weird cameo appearance in The Big Bang Theory. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. And then he retired from acting. Ah. Um, but Warner Came Brothers on. basically gives up on the Iron Giant. They mm-hmm. are just like fuck. We say like this money. You're not getting any more money. We're just gonna pump this thing out. But like we're not doing animation anymore. And so Brad Bird like had this freedom that as long as the lights were on, he could keep going. Mm-hmm. And and go they did. They worked so hard. They went out to to capture the feel of the time period. I love that they went to Maine uh, for a week just to take photos down to the wood. Uh, of the area, like like they just they took photos of homes, home interiors, diners, barns, forests, and really just nailed that. They use uh, um, different um, artist uh, painters and artists for inspiration. Norman Rockwell, which we mentioned earlier, if you're not familiar with him, he's like the Americana, 20th century Americana, like. Uh, painter, illustrator, uh, you know, World War II, Boy Scouts, Happy Home Life, all that stuff. Um, they also use the work of Edward Hopper, most known for um, uh, oil paintings, most most notably Nighthawks, that uh, diner uh, painting, which I think has been brought up on this show before, maybe for Watchmen? Mm, maybe. I don't know. Uh, either way, and N.C. Wyeth, who is an illustrator, most known for uh, his uh, cover uh, that he did for Treasure Island, the novel. Um, he did more big, uh, fantastic, kind of stylistically designed um, work to be understood quickly, a lot of book covers and things like that. But then also animators of the past. They wanted to c- nail that style as well, and I think that shows a lot, and I love that about this film. Chuck Jones, of course, known for Looney Tunes. Hank Ketchum, who's the Dennis the Menace guy, and Al Hirschfeld, who did all of those black and white Broadway portraits mm-hmm. and caricatures um, th- that uh, you would instantly know if you weren't familiar with his work in the past. And then, and then of course, Disney films of that era. Of course, Brad Bird, always always trying to look for stuff like that or, or include stuff like that in his work. So in this case, it's uh, set in the late 50s. So films like 101 Dalmatians, for example, um, and and those all of these artists and all of these um, inspirations are so like lovingly displayed in this film, and that time period is so beautifully captured in this movie in every single way. I love when um, a certain effort is made at capturing these time periods stylistically, uh, uh, the time periods of our past, of, of the heydays, of different Amer- different times in American culture, and I just think they just do such a damn good job in this film. So we're at a Something interesting happens in the later stages of production. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the animators goes rogue and sends a rough cut of the film to Moriarty from Ain't It Cool News, who writes a loving write-up and builds some nerd hype for this. Very he cool. declares it a landmark in American animation, perhaps one of the greatest animated features of all time. It begins testing. Warner Brothers finally begins testing it, and the test and the audience testing is some of the highest numbers they'd ever received for a film. In their history. Warner Brothers goes, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. We f- f- 
we fucked up. <laughs> and the thing is, a Disney movie takes five years to produce, but that means that there's five years to get the marketing down. There's five years to line up the toys, to line up the uh, Happy Meals, to line up the movie posters. You know, it takes a lot of effort to build hype, to raise awareness for these movies. Post and Warner Brothers just did not have any of that backing. Post-release, Bird states that it was a mismarketing campaign of epic proportions at the hands of Warner Brothers. They simply didn't realize what they had on their hands. So uh, this is a 30-second spot of this is when it, when it was finally done. And Warner Brothers I don't even want to play knew. this, Jake. It like, this is it. The team crawl. knew they made something amazing. Warner Brothers knew that they did something amazing. But they're so strapped for time. And Warner Brothers has such little faith in animation in general that this is what they end up coming up with. This is a 30-second spot. It's there's just out of context scenes. Rock this crazy planet. They're just showing like goofy em ups. Like there's nothing. You got nothing from the movie. All right, let's hit it. Okay. Um, uh, Brad Bird so describes bad. going to the movie theater uh, on opening day to see the movie, and they literally don't have on the Showtime board. A, like a little like you know transparent thing with the logo on it there's a piece of notebook paper with just the words iron giant written on it by the showtime post by the showtime display uh now this is where things get interesting brad bird was given the option to delay the release so that warner brothers could get m- more time to raise awareness and he was so like spent and angry and just like frazzled by this entire experience that in a big freak out, he was like, no, you fucking, you made us do this this quickly. You live with this. The movie is coming out when it's supposed to come out. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, it's his hubris as well as Warner Brothers that ended up with a fiasco of its opening day. So that is what you meant when I was like, they should be taken out into the street yeah. and and at least punched in the face. I don't think maybe these Warner Brothers people should be shot, but they should just be smacked a couple times in the face. And you were like, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. It's more complicated than that. Bird had a little bit, quite a bit to do with his own undoing, it, lo- it looks like, at least He's in a this very scenario. headstrong guy. He's very angry. He's combative. Uh, this, this is his speech during the uh, launch party, during the rap party for the movie. Uh, this is like him addressing the crew. Just listen to this. Listen to this. Wait. Yeah. <laughs> so Brad Bird was was pretty mad at this point. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. And and um and apparently also too uh just to throw some more shit onto Warner Brothers. Man, they, this is a bad time for them. This is like a bad year for Warner Brothers. They had put instead of pumping this movie, they had put all their money into the promotion of a little known summer blockbuster called Wow Wow Wow. <laughs> 
West, Jim West, Desperado, Rough Rider. No, you don't want none of none of this. Straight stop, gun of this. Stop it. You know all this. Once upon a time Why in the West. Why do you know this? There was a madman lost his damn mind in the West. Loved less. There's so many more things you could be knowing in your head. I'm going to say I'm gonna say the lyrics to Wild Wild West at your funeral. Deadpan. Be like, Jake knows every lyric to this. Wild Wild West. The film premieres at Man's Chinese Theater in L.A. on July 31st, 1999. The studio needs $8 million that opening weekend to consider it a success. It makes just over $5 million. Uh, he They opened up number nine for that weekend. You know you had a shitty day when Mystery Men kicked your ass. Oh, my God, really? Yeah. I didn't even look at the seven above. I the personally above. remember that weekend I went to see Mystery Men <laughs> <laughs> instead of I, Iron Giant. Again, I mean, I barely – this looked like it was such a just nothing movie mm-hmm. to not to, that no one would care about. Uh, I, I, again, had to have – Someone tell me multiple times how great this film is and how badly I need to watch it before I actually did it years later, mm-hmm. you know? Um, uh, uh, I'm still thinking about the commercial we played earlier. Uh, it's so frustrating. Like, it's just so misrepresented. So, um, uh, they're, they're crestfallen. I mean, th- this team worked so hard on this project, and, and it really seems like they put everything into it it's absolutely beautiful we didn't even talk i mean i know we glossed over we, some things oh. too um what, what were we gonna say no no go ahead oh just just how great the music is it, uh, it was composed and produced by michael Kamen. he was born in new york city and was childhood friends with mike St- snow and there's a crossover for you because mike snow goes on to make the x-men or the x-files theme he is an arranger that was sought after by pop and rock musicians he was sort of that composer that did orchestral parts under like all those like different rock and pop musicians that okay. you know you know whenever they need like uh, um, some fanfare they need a little orchestration so he worked with pink floyd queen eric clapton aerosmith tom petty bon jovi david bowie metallica and that was just like a shortened version of that list um he wrote an absolutely beautiful score he actually ended up commissioning um before that, oh no, he was commissioned for films such as Brazil, Highlander, X-Men, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, um, and whatnot. He ends up trying to do like an old-fashioned sound um, in terms of the orchestration. He ends up going to Prague to hear Vladimir Ashkenazi conduct the Czech Philharmonic and ends up using the Czech Philharmonic for the film score. The whole thing was recorded without conventional uses of syncing and music. It was played as if it were just a piece of like classical repertoire which is gorgeous um it was uh, recorded in one week at the uh rudolphinum in prague which is this beautiful neo-renaissance style theater opened in 1885 noted for its excellent acoustics it has this gorgeous sound i'll play a little bit of it now absolutely just beautiful again just like tender love and care put into every element of this production just This sounds like it was made at another time. Just absolutely gorgeous. So let's talk about the movie. Please. Let's like, what were some of the things that struck you? What like what what were the movie strengths in your opinion? Um, I think there's a definite sense of familiarity uh, and a definite sense of warmth in the characters. You immediately fall fall in love with these characters. I feel like. Uh, And and that kind of goes back to, like, the uh, choices for Harry Connick Jr. 
Uh, and maybe that just came from like hearing like my parents always had that like Harry Connick Jr. Oh. like Christmas album and stuff. <laughs> but like you hear his voice and you're just like it feels like home mm. in in America. You know, it really does. It feels warm too. You know, um, uh, definitely, definitely taught like. And and maybe maybe the research is feeding into this, but but researching about the um, environments and the landscapes, um, and that really pulls through the colors. That fall look is absolutely beautiful. And then like when shit goes fucking ham, like when shit just goes, when the robot just fucking goes bananas, it's so like startling. intense and yeah. startling and out of nowhere, and it's really well done. Um, definitely after having seen it, this is when we'll start to get into the ending stuff, by the way. So if at this point you were like, I just need to go watch this movie and you don't want to get it ruined for you, I would say now is probably a good point to maybe stop and just go watch the movie and then finish this. But the way that they introduce the Superman thing in the earlier part is so well done and so just like beautifully planted as a seed um that is always memorable every time you rewatch the film that stands out so well it's so such a casual moment i was always know? struck by the uh, deer scene yes with the hunters Beautiful. i was just thinking about that when i was thinking about the environments yes yeah because it's such like out of nowhere the, uh, the scene was actually incredibly uh difficult it took the longest out of all of them because initially they had storyboarded it that the giant himself like fucking pet the rabbit too hard and was just going to smush the deer. Mm. But then it ma- it made the giant less innocent. So he had to yeah. like, so they, sw- so Brad birds uh, kind of swooped in and kind of brought up the idea of the gun that you are not a gun guns kill kind of <sighs> bringing back the trauma from his family. And the look of anguish in the iron giant's face when it like realizes that the deer is gone is so raw and so real and it's up to this like little kid to have to explain like this this deep reality you know everything has a like you know souls live forever it's just this insanely intense thing and it kind of has like the quaint simple morality of a child um elsewhere in the movie like when it's just hogarth it's just the hogarth show he has this kind of like bart simpson 90s precocious like kid with attitude thing that I don't actually like that much it's like but Uh uh-huh I think that that I don't know I think it plays all right um just in terms of like getting the kids in a little bit like a little bit when uh the character of Kent Mansley is just like this believable paranoid like he honestly believes he's serving his country but he just is so in over his head and just so scared of everything and the way they animate his performance with this like crazy long head, he just is so expressive. And Shooter McGavin does a great job kind of <laughs> making him this like perfect, like normal guy who is just con- barely concealing the evil within himself. And we didn't even mention the brilliant work of Vin Diesel, who says, I believe it's 58 words in the film, which is still more than he says in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy <laughs> is Groot. He just gets typecast as this thing. It's so funny. He wore his sunglasses the entire time he recorded his dialogue. It's they- in a black tank top you can find the back scenes footage <laughs> they wanted to um they wanted to do, to do a electronically modulated uh voice but they decided they needed a deep resonant and expressive voice to start with he really does an, a great job yeah. in, with the, what little the same what little him. he does um it, it really is so strong and then of course the ending um which is like hard for me to even talk about it's so great um but i think that this time Superman. i realized it's actually that is so good, but the tears started going down when Hogarth says "I love you" to him, yeah. Um, which I'm trying to kind of barrel through so I don't like live in it too long and cry. But like 
that is such an amazing um it just i don't know it's so simple but i was like oh that's when it really start like when he declares his love for the monster no what breaks know? my heart is like it's the most words they exchange like uh-huh. the iron giant is now like talking and is coherent after being so like after struggling to communicate for so long like they finally have this moment where they can speak together yeah. and it's ripped away yeah you i i go you stay Ugh, which is so calls back to the earlier thing hard and then he was hit by a train earlier and that's like pretty mm-hmm. funny mm-hmm. um it's oh, so, and John it's Mahoney, so the dad from Frasier, as the as the general guy, it's uh-huh. like amazing too. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's really beautiful. It's really it's it's so reminiscent. Um, I love the. I, I know to go back. I know I'm going back in this, but like I really do. The fall is like my favorite season. Like uh. it, I love the colors of that time and um, that main landscape and everything. Just really, it just I don't know. I could just and like, it goes live from fall to winter in the yes. movie. Mm-hmm. Um. The the way that they animated the Iron Giant as this 3D creature, usually combining 3D. By with the 2D. way, we didn't even talk about this. The giant is CGI. I don't even know. Do we even talk about this? They it's- developed a unique system um, to make sure that the line quality of the 3D creature is still uneven, in the same way that the 2D animated characters were. Because if it was too perfect, it would uh, stand out too much. But the fact is that early CG is like pretty bad. Early CG is like pretty bad. The one thing it's good at is unmoving solid shapes. And in the case of the Iron Giant, the weakness of CGI actually becomes its greatest strength because it makes him this rigid, otherworldly thing that fe- that just does not belong in this world. Mm-hmm. This painterly, soft, animated world. Uh, Tim McCanley's commented that is, at a certain point... Uh, uh, there are deciding moments when we pick who we want to be, and that plays out for the rest of your life. And he expressed a wish that Iron Giant would make us feel like we're all part of humanity, which is something we need to feel. Um, I love that uh, the, the word existentialism was put as, as a theme, uh, but I can kind of see that because it's like, you're not, you know, I guess it's from the approach that it's like, what do you want? You know, not some deciding force or factor but like you if there's nothing out there if there's nothing after this like what what do you want to be you know so absolutely love it and yet at the same time they made this beautiful thing it's like one of probably one of the best animated films ever made at this point at least after you know going over it again uh and kind of definitely the most effective yeah for sure there's Uh, moments where like you can tell that there was a rush in a budget but uh after the movie came out and it had its lackluster reaction uh, Brad Bird got a phone call from uh, this chubby guy who just won an Academy Award for Best Director, <laughs> Guillermo del Toro. Wait, he just won for Pan's Labyrinth? Uh, no, actually, uh, the the Shape of Fish sticks. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, okay. This is Brad Bird. And the fact is, is that this movie, for the small number of people that did see it, it affected them deeply. Mm-hmm. It was this cherished secret among animation fans. It eventually got rerun on Cartoon Network. It got a slew of, you know, Blu-ray re-releases. And 
it got to the point where it's such an essential part of pop culture and like geek culture that you can't buy like a loot crate without getting some Iron Giant tchotchkes. You can't go to the Funko Pop aisle at GameStop and not see some Iron Giant merch. Um, the uh, it's even in as I mentioned earlier, it's like a key aspect of Ready Player One is this like indelible yeah. point of youthful nostalgia, and uh, the movie will outlive its like weird. Uh, troubled birth <laughs> and Brad Bird has gone on to make several uh, popular movies and including the Incredibles Ratatouille the Incredibles and I'd like to out. think that this kind of set on a new trend in Hollywood because um, I, I wanted to uh, punch this person I've never met in the face uh, when I read this quote from then president uh, of Warner Brothers Lorenzo D. Bonaventura who said people always say to me why don't you make smarter family movies the lesson is every time you do you get slaughtered well I, I, I say fuck that. And I think that that quote was made uh, before films like Up and WALL-E and uh, Toy Story 3 and so many of the great Pixar films that we got. I know, you know, Brad Bird definitely had a big hand in 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 um in Pixar and all that kind of stuff. I th- I'd like to think that we are capable of getting uh, smarter family movies and uh, more resonant ones uh, in the future. And uh, I just hope that this trend uh, continues because it's important. You know, it's yeah. important, and it's like what our kids are seeing. You know, early early on in their lives, and to have profound effects on them and who they choose to be. Ooh, that's nice. That's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap. Ah, this is a this is a nice like palette. So good. I was so ready for this. I know, right? That was Philip I, K. Dick. I was so ready for this. Uh, really quick, uh, you can follow us on uh, uh, you can follow me on twitch.tv forward slash holdnators ho. You can check out our Patreon, uh, where we do weekly bonus content. Um, Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Jake, uh, follow me on Twitter at best Jake Young. Go to dorkly.com where I have a hand in all sorts of nonsense. And uh, if you have the time. You know, open up your phone and leave a review on iTunes. We're also on the Google Play Store now if you want to uh, subscribe through there. Every review helps us immensely in ways you cannot even imagine. So if you haven't done it yet, I'll be your best friend. Hell yeah. Have a good one, y'all. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Mom, I got the job in Manhattan. Do you have a warm enough winter coat? What about your car? I'm selling it with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. How? I enter my license plate number, miles, condition, upload photos, and boom! An official cash offer from a local dealership. A cash offer instantly? Oh, did you call Aunt Stella? She's right there in Massachusetts. Mom, I literally just got the job. Not everything is as simple as selling your car with Kelly Blue Book Instant Cash Offer. Price it, fix it, trade it, sell it, kbb.com it.